This message by Jake Simmons was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Jake serves as a pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Well, good morning. You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We're going to continue our series through the book of Acts this morning. If you did not have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hands and one of our ushers will come and bring you a Bible that you can keep and take home with you. For many of us, we have either read or heard passages in the Bible that make us uncomfortable. We don't quite know what to do with them. Sometimes it's an odd or puzzling saying of Jesus. Other times, it's a strange vision in Ezekiel or Daniel. But often, it's when God does something that we don't expect or even don't understand. Maybe we find it confusing. Maybe we find it frightening. The passage we're going to look at this morning is one of those. God judges and kills two members of his church because they have lied about the amount of money they had given to the apostles and the church. Perfect text for Mother's Day. I was actually talking with someone this week about this text that I'm preaching on, and as I was talking to them, they said, I have never read that passage and walked away encouraged in my soul. (laughs) I'm guessing many of you might be able to identify with this person, maybe share in the lack of encouragement and faith given, maybe even you walk away confused. Well, I'm here this morning to say I am confident, I am confident that God is going by his grace to have you walk away this morning encouraged in your soul. Confident of that. So up to this point in Luke, or in Acts, Luke has been keeping a catalog of the exponential growth of that is going on in the church. Recall It began with a a small band of 11 disciples, and then there were 120 gathered when Pentecost occurred in chapter 1, verse 15. Then after Pentecost and Peter's sermon, there were 3,000 added to their numbers. We read about that in chapter 2, verse 41. And then in chapter 4, verse 4, Luke tells us that that number had reached 5,000, and that was just the men. So what we're looking at is a total number of Christians when you combine men, women, and kids somewhere in between 10,000 to 15,000 people that are gathering together to worship the risen Savior. These are people from different nations, different languages, different cultures. You have rich, you have poor, you have educated, you have uneducated This church, as one person described it, is a sociological impossibility. From a human standpoint, this should not exist. This church, this gathering should not exist. But even more so, it shouldn't have survived up until this day. To where this sociological impossibility is continuing to grow. Is continuing to flourish. Is continuing to exhibit and bring God glory. Even in the face of persecution and pressure, this church 
this community continues to grow. And as we will see this morning, opposition doesn't just come from outside the church, but then it comes from within. So the question we must ask ourselves, what can we learn this morning from this early church? What can we, Cornerstone Church in Knoxville, what is Luke wanting to tell us? What is God wanting to tell us this morning? What can we take away and learn from this text? I think if I could capture it in one sentence, this is what I would say. Be a church fully devoted to Jesus Christ and his people. That's what he wants. He wants us to be a church fully devoted to Jesus Christ and his people. So from our text this morning, Luke provides three characteristics of a church that is fully devoted. And that'll be our points for this morning. Great grace, great fear, and great power. So let's look at those now. First, great grace. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. This is God's word May we receive it as so. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we'll stop there. Humphrey Monmouth was a very successful cloth merchant on the east side of London in the early 1500s. And one evening he attended a church to hear a man speak by the name of William Tyndale. Now we have heard about William Tyndale the last several weeks. William Tyndale gave his whole life and eventually was martyred so that the Bible would be translated in English and so that not just those in the church could have a Bible, but the gardener could have a Bible, the plowman could have the Bible, everyone could have access to the Word of God. And so William Tyndale, what he wanted to do was to give his life so that he would be able to take the original manuscripts of Scripture and and write them in English so that the common person could have a copy of the scriptures so that they might read and know of the riches of God's grace in Jesus. Well, Humphrey Monmouth went one night to hear William Tyndale speak, and they developed a friendship. And during dinner one evening, William Tyndale shared with Humphrey a letter that he had received from a bishop. And, and William had reached out to this bishop asking if he would be a patron of his. So if, if this bishop would support him in his cause. And this bishop said, I'm sorry, I can't do that. My house is full. I cannot, 
I cannot house you. I cannot support you. I cannot feed you. And so Tyndale, William Tyndale, was very discouraged. He didn't know what he wanted. He was having to work on top of translating. He was sharing with with Humphrey. I just want to be able to give myself to this task. I just want to be able to give all of my time and energy. And so during that dinner, as Humphrey Monmouth listened to William Tyndale, he looked at William and he says this to him. Dear Master Tyndale, many thanks for your inquiry and your fine piece of translation. God has given you a job to do, and it's time you get to work. Most sincerely, H. Monmouth, Bishop of Nothing, Patron of One. And then in the air, he signs it. And what he just did is he committed to William Tyndale that I am going to fully fund you so that you can give your work to this English translation of the Bible. And so William Tyndale moved in with Humphrey Monmouth. He lived with him. Um, he, he worked at his table. It's written that Monmouth would just sit. And as Tyndale worked silently at his table, there was discussion going on of this new reformation taking place in Germany, led by this man named Martin Luther. And what was said is Monmouth was committed to Tyndale in the, in the advance of the scriptures. And what was said, as Monmouth looked, he was wondering, what might God do if Tyndale could supply the nation with an English Bible? And it was around Monmouth's table that the future of the English Bible was unfolded. Monmouth also was a smuggler for Tyndale. He would use his ships, his crates, to carry these New Testaments to other parts of the country that he was not allowed to. He went to prison so that these Bibles would be committed. And eventually, Monmouth would read of Tyndale's execution. And even through his sadness, Monmouth felt a sense of pride. He said, you did it, William. Monmouth then said underneath his breath, we did it. And England will never be the same. History remembers Tyndale, but it's largely forgotten That behind this massive movement of God was a businessman willing and ready to support William Tyndale and what God was doing. John Reinhardt writes this. He said, God is not looking for philanthropists who can merely write big checks, but for people who love him and live to spread the news of his son, Jesus Christ. And so this is what we need. We need stories like this of men and women who have walked the balance beam of blessing who God has given prosperity so that they might use what God has given them for the advance of the gospel so that we can have those who are like Barnabas in our text, who are like Humphrey Monmouth. We need to see how they found the narrow way that leads to life so that we can find it too. So just imagine this scene. You have 10 to 15,000 people from different nations, languages, cultures, varying levels of wealth and education, all this diversity. And this is what verse 32 says in our text. It says that all these people were dwelling together in one heart and soul. They were truly unified. All this diversity, yet there was true unity. And notice, Luke makes very clear what is making this possible. Look at verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. That is how this is possible. The great grace of God. The grace of God is one of the most important subjects in all of Scripture. 
we have to make sure that we understand the grace of God. At the same time, it can also be misunderstood. People can misunderstand what grace is. Grace is God's undeserved favor through Christ to people, to us, to sinners who only deserve his wrath. So it's not that just we're undeserving of it. It's that we deserve his punishment and judgment. And how do we get that? It is through Jesus Christ. Michael Reeves helpfully writes this. He says, when Christians talk of God giving us grace, we can quickly imagine that grace is some kind of spiritual pocket money, just money that he doles out. Here, have some grace. Here you go. The word grace is really just a shorthand way of speaking about the personal, the personal and loving kindness out of which ultimately this is what we get. God gives us himself. Grace is not some spiritual pocket money that God doles out to us. When God gives us grace, he gives us himself. He gives you himself. This was the great characteristic of these first Christians. The grace of God came so powerful on these early Christians, it was almost tangibly experienced. People would walk in and see, imagine 10 to 15,000 people gathered together in unity. People looking, not looking the same, speaking different languages, yet they were of one heart. They were of one mind. They, saw, they thought and felt the same things, meaning that they weren't all this. They, they said the same things in the same way or looked all the same way. No, they all loved Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ had changed their life. They have encountered the grace of God. They had encountered God himself. Verse 32 says, these people were of one heart. They are of one soul. The heart here is the controlling center of their life. Their affections, they were united by this amazing reality, the grace of God. Not some substance, but they had taken faith. They had, by faith, had taken hold of Christ. They had fully devoted themselves to Jesus Christ. What a needed picture and reminder for us today as a church. In a day that is marked by what... Um, Charles Taylor says, expressive individualism and customization. We need this reminder that it is possible to have unity in the church. It's a sociological impossibility, but what is impossible with man, with politics, with whatever it might be is possible with God. In Christ, this is possible. And we have to, we have, we have, we have to hold on to this. We have to fight for this. We live in a time where priority is placed on the individual and their preferences. We live in a time where we can customize things to exactly how we desire. Think about this. We live in the day and age of five guys, burger, and fries. Stay with me. I know you're hungry. Stay with me. They do a great burger. But, but think about this. You walk in to that restaurant and you look at a menu that is saying, you customize your burger to however you want it. One or two patties, cheese or no cheese. You want bacon, you want all the toppings you want. You walk into that store and it's saying, hey, this is about you and your burger experience and you customize it however you want. However you want. You make that burger however you want. All the toppings you want. And then after you finish your Five Guys burger, then you go down to Starbucks. 
You walk into that coffee shop and, and, and what do you see? You can customize your coffee or your tea or whatever else drink you get. And what that restaurant is saying is you can customize your experience. You can customize your drink to however your heart desires. The world exists for you to enjoy. How do you want it? Let us know. If you don't like it, we'll make you another one. You can, you can get your grande quad, non-fat breve, non-dairy, half-fun, vanilla, soy latte, shaken, not stirred, coffee drink. Whatever you want makes you happy. It's mind-boggling. Just two simple examples. I'm not even getting into social media. Not even getting into the other ways in which we're able to create this individualistic, my preference over you world. And we would be remiss if we don't think this type of daily living does not infiltrate the way we think about the church. The way that we think about who do we want to be in community with. The priorities that we place on what we think church community should look like. How, what, what I want my community to look like, what I want the church to look like, this invades our thinking, and it's subtle. We live in it day in and day out in this world, and God in his kindness has given us this text so that we might be awakened to it. How are you living like this, where your preference, what you want, how you want your, the church to be. How is this infiltrating your thinking? The Lord, by his grace, is ripping the blinders off this morning. The church is meant to be a fellowship, not based on our personal preference, but on something so much deeper, something so much more meaningful, something that a fellowship that is blood-bought, a fellowship that was purchased Remember, that was purchased that we get by grace. What we deserve is wrath, but what we get is grace. What we get is God himself. What we get is a fellowship that is blood-bought, that is based on our unity in Christ. It's a fellowship that has power. It's a fellowship that unites people who would have never been united apart from it. This is the danger. We can look for communities that we want to be a part of, even in the church, that would exist even without the gospel. Think about that. I can look for and customize my church experience that would exist even if the gospel did not exist. It can be based on what you, your, your stage in life, the ministry you want to be a part of, all these things which are good, but they can become a gospel plus. Yes, the gospel, but I also need this, really. You want to know the power of the gospel? People walked in to 10 to 15,000 people who were worshiping the Savior who should not be there. They should not be standing next to each other. These people should not be in the same room. But they are standing here and they are raising their voices and they are singing of a Savior that had saved them. So many of my relationships in this church would not exist apart from the gospel. So, so many of the people that I love dearly, they were blood-bought friendships. The wife that I am married to, I would have never looked to, been attracted to, would have desired to marry. She was a blood-bought gift for me. God 
opened my eyes through the gospel and gave me eyes to see his church. Let me see and experience fellowship, a unity, a deepness of heart that far surpasses anything this world could have ever offered me. That is powerful. And that is what we cornerstone want the world to see when they walk into this place. That is what we want to spread all over Knoxville. That is why we want a plan of church is because we truly believe in the gospel, that we've been changed by it and that it is powerful and we want to see it spread for his, for Christ's glory. So the question is, for those of you who may struggle with enjoying and experiencing this type of fellowship, could, is the problem, maybe consider, is the problem the church or is it your own heart? Are there things that you're looking for, that you're expecting, that you're desiring, maybe that the Lord would say, hey, those are not my priorities. My priorities for you are unreserved, complete and deep devotional love for me and for my people. If, if, if you have that, then you can have community. You can have community. So Luke goes on to share another expression of this great grace, and that is of generosity. Look at verse 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them. And they brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any, as any had need. So Luke shares there were those in the church who were wealthy. They had land. That's how you, that's how you were able to get money as you own land and you were able to sell it. And this, was, they, this is not something that the church was forcing them to do. But this is something that the gospel does. People, the, the people in the church saw there are those in the church who are needy, who have real needs. The Lord has given me land I see a need, I want to sell the land, and I want to lay it at the apostles' feet because I see that God is in this place, and I want him to use it however he wants to meet the needs of this church. That is how God works. These people gave, as 2 Corinthians tells us, they gave cheerfully, they gave willingly, they gave excitedly because they were changed by the gospel. They would just think of this. They would sell this property and they would just lay it at these men's feet and just say, here you go. As there is need, use it. I don't need a record. I don't need need to be told about it. I just want you to use it. They entrusted it to these men who were proclaiming the gospel. Yet in their midst, there were those like Ananias and Sapphira. There was something that was required of these people, but having been transformed by the gospel, there were those in their midst who had selfish and ambition. Which we'll look at in a minute. Yet there were those in the church who, having been transformed by the gospel, the need for wealth and possessions, the, what the gospel does is it loosens the grip on our need to need stuff. To need money. You know, it loosens the grip on our own need for that, and then we get excited about using it for God's purposes. I love that. I love what the gospel does. You have 
People from every economic level gather together. God is using each of them in significant and great ways in the church. And what we see is that the Lord was leading people to be generous with their money, being generous to meet those who are in need of the church. And Luke gives a specific example of a man named Joseph who they eventually called Barnabas, the son of encouragement. He will become a co-laborer with Apostle Paul. This is, this is Luke introducing us to him. We see later on why he was called the son of encouragement. A, a Barnabas was a faithful encourager. To be around Barnabas, I'm guessing, is to be around a man who would make you excited about God, who loved to talk about the things of God, who, who would take a great interest in you. And we want to encourage your faith. So Luke introduces us to this man. He's from Cyprus. He, he had property. He had wealth. And as he saw what God was doing in this church, he was compelled. The only thing he could do was go and sell his property and bring it back. And, and, and what Luke is telling us is that as he lays it at the apostles' feet, Luke is letting us know this was a private moment for Barnabas. Barnabas didn't want people to see this. There was a way to give which was very flamboyant, which was, which was noticed. But Barnabas, he was wanting to be private in his giving. He was wanting to honor God and just meet the needs of the church. Yet, the apostles used him as a, an example of great generosity, as an example of wanting to use their wealth and to use their time and to use their energy for the, for the encouragement of the church. Barnabas gave this way. Why, why would you do this? Why would you give in this way? Well, Barnabas gave this way because he truly believed. Think about this. He truly believed in the resurrection. So if I believe in the resurrection, if I believe that, that, I, that I have been saved with Christ, that heaven is my home, that there's going to be a new world, that, that this earth and all these things are going to pass away, then it changes every, everything. Changes the way that you think about all that you have. And so Barnabas was changed by that. His citizenship had gone from that being one of Cyprus, from one being here and there. It's like, no, I'm a citizen of heaven. And from it, I await a heavenly kingdom. And so what does that mean? I am free and excited to give and sacrificially give for the purpose of what God is doing. So it's a good moment for each of us to ask, do we truly believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ in such a way that we don't live for this world, but we live for the world to come? And if we do, if you truly believe that, if I live believing in the world to come, in the resurrection of Jesus, then living in light of that day will change how I live today. It'll change what, how I use finances today. It'll use how I change how I use my time today. Do we, do we truly believe that Christ has risen from the dead? We truly believe that. Then that will change how, not only how we live, it'll change how we give, it'll change how we spend our time, it'll spend how we, how we talk, it'll change, and it'll go throughout the church, and people will come in, and they will see this, and they'll be like, what is in this place? What are, what's wrong with these people? They're different. There's power here. There's grace here. The resurrection of Christ is real. It changes everything. Good moment for us to ask, what world are we living for? There's great grace upon this church. I, I just see it. I just see it everywhere. God is at work in so many ways. It's so important to remember God doesn't care about the checks you write, but because of your love for the Savior. Don't miss this. It's not about, it's not about just the checks you write, right? We're not just philanthropists but we have, we have our hearts have been captivated for a mission for Christ. 
I found this week someone sent money into the church so they could buy books for all the children's ministry classrooms. I love that. Nobody, nobody's going to know about that. I didn't even know about that. But they sent it in. They said, hey, I want to fill the children's ministry classrooms in this church with books that are about the gospel. They're about what God is doing. That's just a small example of the generosity of what's going on. That, that, that God, by his grace, is moving people to, to fulfill his mission. It's all about what he is doing, and we get to partner with it. I'm here, and it's not just about finances. It is, it is like being generous with them, but it's also our time. I get here um, yesterday about 2 o'clock, and I see two women, Julie Doss and Paulette Clow, here using an hour and a half of their Saturday to set up the Mother's Day gift area to make it look good. Because if that was up to us, it would look horrible. But they love to use their time and gifts for, the, for, for that little moment because they love the moms in this church. That's not a small thing for them. That's an expression of care and time that they want to give to bless you. It's not a small thing. It's not, it's not a throwaway thing. They were laughing. They were having such a good time. They've been changed by the gospel. The Bible tells us that God cares less about how much we have and more about what we do with it. What are you doing with it? This leads to our next point. Great fear. Acts 5. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and, and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled you, your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? And while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose, wrapped him up, and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me. Whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. It's amazing to read of this account on the heels of what just Luke highlighted. It should lead us to ask the question, why did Luke include this? It should also include, it, it should also lead us to think about Luke didn't have to include this, right? He didn't have to. He didn't have to write this story, but he's a, but he's a historian. He's putting this together so that we will see something. The great grace, this is what God is building. But then there's this moment where something else is going on in the church. I love what John Stott says. He says, it is not all romance and righteousness in the church. It's not all romance and righteousness in the church. You can think that, can't you? Oh, if we just lived, if we, oh, 10, 15,000 people just so happy. There were no problems. They were of one heart, one soul. If we could just get back to that time. And then Luke drops this bomb. It wasn't all romance and righteousness during this time. And there's something for us to learn from. He's wanting to teach us something in this moment. So what is it? What is it? Well, it's a contrast. He's wanting to say there was, there was a couple, there's a man and woman, Ananias and Sapphira. 
And you'll notice he uses very similar language to Barnabas, doesn't he? Very similar language. They had a piece of property like Barnabas. They bought it like Barnabas. They put it at the apostles' feet. It was identical language. It's the same, but one word, but. But, he begins with this, but. It's a contrast. There's reservation. What was it? Well, they kept back part of the money. They kept some back, and they were in collusion with one another to do it. And what happened? There was an entirely different result. There was not this great grace, but instead there was judgment, and there was great fear. Verse 5, Ananias is confronted, and he's exposed, and he falls down, and he dies. He lies. Then later on, his wife, Sapphira, she's confronted. She's even offered the opportunity to repent. She's offered this opportunity to turn, but she doesn't. She, she, she lies, and she falls down to her death. This was not Peter's doing. Peter did not do this. What Peter did is he said, hey, here's what's happening. The Spirit gave Peter the insight to say, you have lied to God. You have lied to God, the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is God. You have lied to the Spirit, and now judgment is coming. So Peter is not the one, is not the one doing it. He is the one explaining, here's what's about to happen. Here's what's about to happen, and here's why. You have lied. You have deceived. And this, and this was not, this was not just a moment. This was not just a, oh, it just kind of came in my heart on accident. It just kind of slipped out. No, they had planned this. They were a couple with great communication. They were a husband and wife with shared values. They were a couple who, on the outside, everything looked happy and good. But on the inside, it was all hypocrisy. It was all a game. So why then this terrible judgment? They lied to the Holy Spirit. And this is what Peter says. Why has Satan filled your heart? Why has he filled your heart? He asked why because Ananias is responsible. So we have to, we have to realize this. It's not that Satan controlled Ananias to do this. Remember, Jesus asks Judas, why has Satan filled your heart? He used similar language. Why has Satan done this? Why have you yielded your life and your heart to the demonic authorities and the sinister's authority? So we don't know exactly what this looks like for Satan to fill their hearts. It is a question that baffles us. We don't know exactly how Satan interacts with our sinful nature to do his ugly work. But I think it is fair to say that our own sinfulness is like an invitation. It's like a welcome mat, an open door to Satan. It's like, hey, come on in. We're scheming and thinking about, hey, we love, we would love to get the reputation of Barnabas. Barnabas is getting all kind of attention. He's the son of encouragement. I want, let's be the couple of encouragement. Let's go, let's go get our property. Let's sell it. Let's be the couple of encouragement in this church. But hey, let's just keep a little extra. You know, on the side, it's okay. We'll lie. Yeah, we'll say it's everything. But hey, we'll be the couple of encouragement. Imagine the name they'll give us. Imagine the reputation we'll have in this church. Satan loves that. 
Oh, that is a melody to him. Oh, can we cause this couple to be prominent? Can we cause them to be the couple of encouragement? And can I wreak havoc in this church with their selfishness? with their selfish ambition, with their lies and, and their, their deceit. Oh, would this couple be prominent? Because they will wreak havoc. They will destroy this church. But they have met their match. They lied to God and God knew their heart. And guess what? God, what God is saying to us this morning, what he cares about more than anything is the purity of his church. He cares about the purity of it. He cares about that it's not just this, this gospel of grace, this gospel of forgiveness, yes, but there's also this great fear. Because the God that you're saved to is a holy, righteous, and just God. And he wants his people to be like him. And so that's what he's saying in this moment. He is saying, yes, there is a gospel of grace. Yes, but there is also great fear in my church because it is my church and it is what I'm building and if you want my power, if you want me to be present, then you will be holy because I am holy. You will not be selfishly ambitious. So the question is, why, why this couple and not, like say, Simon the magician later? Why not? There's other instances of this. Well, this is a pivotal moment. This is, this is a moment where God is making a statement. He is saying, yes, I'm a God of grace, but I'm also a God of great fear. And, and, and you might think, how, do, how can those two things exist together? How is, how is it that you can be a God who says, yes, I'm a God of great grace and I love you, but then you say, I'm a God of great fear. How do those come together? It doesn't make sense. It is only through the gospel. It is only through, you want to you see how God does this? You go to the cross and you examine the cross. And what you see at the cross is you see God's commitment and grace to his people. He loves us so much. He loves you so much. He was willing to send his own son to live a righteous life, to die a sinful death, and to die on the tree for your sin against him. He loves you that much. But he hates sin so much. He is such a holy God that he is willing to send his own son. He is willing to send his own son to die on the cross for sinners because that is the only way that it happens. That is the only way because he's holy. Just because he's gracious doesn't mean that we get to walk all over him. No, he takes sin seriously. So brothers, sisters, if there is sin in your life, if you are being a hypocrite, God is calling you to the cross. He's calling you to the cross to repent, to confess your sin. Ananias and Sapphira, they were liars and they were hypocrites. They played the game and they got caught. They got caught. This morning, God says, stop playing the game. Come to me. Come to me. I love you. I am your father. I am a God of all grace. Where your sins are many, my grace is more. The fear of the Lord is a reverential awe. It's what it is. It is a way of, a, it's, it's a way which we look to God and what we see is we see a father's heart, but we also see a powerful God. One that he is not to be messed with. One that he's not to be lied to. But one we can find forgiveness in. Praise God. So this morning, come to him. Come to him.
people ask if Ananias and Sapphira were Christians. I don't, I mean, I love to say what John Newton said. He said, three things are going to surprise me in heaven. Three things. First, there's going to be people there who I thought were going to be there that aren't. Two, there's going to be people there that I thought shouldn't be there and are. You want to know what number three is? That I'm there. That's the greatest. Whew, that, yeah, that's right. The Lord this morning is not wanting us to focus on Ananias and Sapphira. He's using this story to put a window into your heart. And he's drawing you to himself. Because he loves you. Because he loves you. So come to him. Come to him. Receive forgiveness. Lastly, we see great power in the church. I love what Luke writes in chapter 5, verse 13. He says, none of the rest dared to join him. <laughs> oh, but the people held him in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. I just want to, we'll end with this. There was great grace upon this church and a sense of awe. So, so as a church where, where the Holy Spirit is present, there is both. We are going to proclaim his power. And it's, and it's his power to save, and it's, power, and it's his power to change. It is his purifying, sanctifying power that we proclaim, the gospel that changes your whole life. And so what we want is we want people, we ourselves want to come in. I hope this morning you came in today discouraged. I hope you cannot... I hope, no, well, you know, I hope that you came in feeling discouraged. What I want for you this morning is to come to Christ and be changed. I don't, I want you to leave not feeling like, oh, God is scary and I need to be a, no, I want you to come saying this God is so amazing that, that I want to cling to him. There's power in this God. He's not just a nice God. He's a life-transforming, eternal life-giving, church-building, building his church, a sociological impossibility. These people should not be together. What makes these people so different? It is Jesus Christ. It is him crucified. It's the message we proclaim. It's all that we have. Without that, it's impossible. But what is impossible for us is possible with God. The power that we so long to experience, we can't muster up. We can't sing a worship song, the bridge over and over, trying to muster it up. But when we come and we say, here is who God is. Here is his word. Here is his truth. Here is what he's done. Oh, there's power. Life-transforming power. It's what we long for. That's what we long to pray for. It's what we long to see built. It's what we long to spread. So let's be a church. Let's be a church fully devoted to Jesus Christ. And let's be a church fully devoted to his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning and your, your power. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. Oh Lord, we, we worship you. Lord, our eyes, are, our eyes have looked to the hills. Because where does our help come from? And Lord, we look to a hill that's called Calvary. And what we see is a God of great grace and a God of great power and a God of great fear who has shown us his love, who is doing a wonderful work, who is who's doing a work
that he began. And Lord, you promise you will complete. That is our hope. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to a message given by Jake Simmons during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.